Hi, this is Dr. Ziegenbein, your favorite rheumatologist and fibromyalgia expert coach. Fibromyalgia has the capacity to rule and even ruin your life. I am here to show you how to stand up to it, how to be your fibromyalgia boss, once and for all. Hello, everyone. I am very excited to introduce Dr. Leanne Dooley, a board-certified psychiatrist at our podcast, Winning at Fibromyalgia podcast. Dr. Dooley is a psychiatrist at Charlie Norwood VA Medical Center in Augusta, Georgia. She received her medical degree from University of Arkansas for Medical Sciences, College of Medicine. Then she proceeded to do her residence, psychiatry residency program at Indiana University College of Medicine. And currently, I hope it's okay to tell a secret that currently you're involved in MPH studies. So you'll be graduating and becoming Master of Public Health in May 2022 from Georgia State University. Welcome to our podcast. I'm so excited to have you. Thank you. Thank you for that introduction. So I, I do want to get to talk about fibromyalgia, obviously, since that's our jam here. But I would like to ask you, I get so excited when I get other providers here. I, I try to find out more about them. So I, and I'm very fascinated by psychotherapy and psychiatry. Would you mind sharing with us what led you to, or how early did you know that you want to be a psychiatrist? And then what kind of, what is the story behind it, if you don't mind? So I definitely knew from a young age that I wanted to be something in science. So I either envisioned myself as a doctor or a scientist of some sort. So I knew that pretty early. I came to psychiatry really in medical school. So I entered medical school thinking I wanted to be an OBGYN and psychiatry was my first rotation and I loved it. And the school I went to is a very strong, known for making strong psychiatry candidates. So it's very popular to go into psychiatry at the, where I trained. Okay. And we're, I, unlike some places where state hospitals aren't a part of psychiatry training anymore, we had that in the VA and, uh, of course, typical university. But I think being in the state hospital with the like sickest patients and being comfortable and, and I just really felt like that was my place. So. So that was kind of in my mind. I did OBGYN uh, OBG, uh, second rotations and I was like, no. <laughs> and was, okay. And I, I was like, oh, this is not for me. You know, just the lifestyle and, you know, the stress. I was just like, I, I can't do this. So I kept coming back to psychiatry. Everything I rotated through, I kept coming back to psychiatry. So that was my um, next question that it was your first rotation. You fell in love with it. And then no other rotation kind of stirred you away or steered you away. No, as much as I loved, I think probably family medicine was the next mm -hmm. that was so interesting. And partially because in my state, I'm from Arkansas, it's a pretty rural state. So when we do family medicine there, you can do it out in the community. And it's like old school family medicine. You know, you're delivering, I mean, you're doing everything. And I thought that was really fun, but I couldn't really imagine myself otherwise working with anything else besides psychiatry. So, And would you mind sharing what exactly, what specifically was it about psychiatry? Was it that it was kind of, digging deep into patients' mental world or like what was it that attracted you so much to it? I, mean, I think it's fascinating in itself that you could be like on a path of normal development and really just like have this thing happen with your mind. I mean, I guess found that 
the pathology of how these things come about pretty fascinating. I think because there are some parts of psychiatry that are still open and uh, to exploration, you know, there's so much that we don't know about the mind as much as we've learned about the brain itself, you know, our neurology cousins, you know, so as the kind of neuroscience part that they know, there's a lot about the mind we don't know, motivations and all that. So I think I just found how the pathology developed very fascinating and how important you know, I feel like physicians can play a role and be important in a lot of patients' lives, but to see how important, you know, the mental health providers were for the cases that I took care of, I was like, wow, I think I can, I think I could do that. And then I think also pretty early on, I realized I was a person who could kind of hear and absorb these, you know, often traumatic or really horrible things. And I had I had a way of processing that and not taking it with me. So a lot of the other students who were rotating were like, I don't want to do this. You know, I'm, right. I'm at home crying after, you know, the rotation is done. And I, I didn't. It was just kind of naturally I wasn't a person who like necessarily took that home. And so I think also recognizing, like, oh, that's a skill that I have. You know, I'm just kind of innately more able to do that and not not take it on. Yeah, that's, I take that as a gift. Like, that's pretty amazing that you're not able to, like, you hear a terrible story or you basically are able to be empathetic, but you don't take it home. Like, you can leave it there. That's incredible. There was an article about you on that website, Melanin MD, and they wrote, a, they interviewed you. So that was one of the things I noticed, like, wow, that is incredible that you're, you have that gift. You shared another not, it, it's probably not a secret. You shared something else about what happened in medical school. You got to know somebody that you later called secret weapon. Can you tell us about oh, yeah. that? <laughs> yeah. When I was in my residency, I met my, my oh, husband there. Okay. He's also, yeah, in residency, he's also a psychiatrist. And, you know, I call him my secret weapon because I feel like, you know, he's uh, like nine years older, but he was, you know, behind. So he kind of lived a life before he came to residency into medical school. And I think part of the reason he's my secret weapon is because up until that point, I had a pretty traditional career, you know, like I was pretty much grinding through, you know, kind of a traditional route. I didn't have many breaks or anything like that. And he definitely kind of helped me learn how to like balance. Again, he had lived a life, he had traveled, and had lots of experiences and I hadn't really had that. And so I think he's come in and kind of helped me kind of balance and understand what it means to really have a full life, kind of in some why I feel like he's my secret weapon, because as you know, medicine can take over your life. And so it's good to have a sense of right. what it is to have a balanced well, life. Thank you for clarifying. I was curious how you meant it, that he was a secret weapon. But tell, tell me, how how is it to have two psychiatrists married? Do you talk shop at, at home at all or no? Okay, you do. <laughs> Sometimes we do because I'll, my husband is forensically trained. And so, you know, there are definitely some times where I ask him some specific questions about like certain cases or risk assessments and things like that. I mean, I think he'll run difficult cases by me also. And I think even though I say like I have that kind of, I feel like a, a kind of a natural give not to bring things home. I mean, we are human and everybody's mm-hmm. going to have something that touches him. And I think that, you know, there is the potential to get secondary trauma, like hearing so many traumatic things. Mm-hmm. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I have been the first person that people have divulged things to. And mm-hmm. so um, I think in that way, we can kind of help, you know, just be like a natural support for processing some of those feelings, you know, kind of both ways in a way that 
you know, I think once you, when you're a resident, you have a supervisor, you have an attendant. And in psychiatry, we spend a lot of time like examining our own feelings and processing our own feelings. That's like a big part of it. Mm-hmm. And so I think to be kind of absent from that, it's nice to kind of have him as a sounding board. But like I said, he does like to keep balance. So if it gets to be a little too much, he always lets me know. He's like, we're not talking about, right. <laughs> not talking about work right now. Thank you for sharing that. I think it's incredible that you have that at home. So that actually provides good segue to what I was going to ask you about, kind of the beef of our session today, which is about connection between prior trauma and development of chronic conditions, but in particular fibromyalgia. Fibromyalgia is currently considered, as you probably know, a neuroplastic kind of syndrome, set of misfiring neurons that are misinterpreting information from the periphery. Patients have chronic pain, but they don't have identifiable cause. And obviously fibromyalgia can coexist with structural damage and issues, but for the sake of this discussion, I'm just sticking with fibromyalgia definition as being pain without inflammation or damage. And many of my patients, some rheumatologists, many of my patients do report significant trauma in the past. Some of them have a diagnosis of post-traumatic stress disorder. Some of them don't, but they, as I'm explaining the concept of fibromyalgia, they're nodding I had a patient this week who was tears just streaming down her face as I was explaining how chronic stress and chronic sympathetic nervous system activation can produce pain. And she was nodding. So what I'm about to ask is basically how you approach handling trauma from your perspective as a psychiatrist with these patients. As I mentioned, you are a psychiatrist at the Charlie Norwood VA Medical Center in Augusta, Georgia. So you have probably a lot of clients or patients with PTSD. So can you talk to us a little bit about that? Yes. And I think the other interesting thing about the population is a lot of people entering the military, you know, some of them choose to, you know, they maybe, maybe they always wanted to, but oftentimes there are people who have a story where they're escaping something. And a lot of times they're, what they're escaping are some of those adverse childhood experiences, whether it was poverty, you know, neglect, or even a type of abuse, right? That was kind of like the how they saw their way out. So I say that because the trauma that we tend to think about, whether it's like combat related trauma or even like sexual trauma, a lot of times for veterans, there's layers. There's that trauma that's associated with the military. But as you kind of dig underneath, it's so common to find some kind of childhood trauma experience as well. So I think trauma is definitely well represented, even in, like you said, the people who do not have official diagnosis of PTSD, they've had these traumatic experiences. So I would say the first way I approach it is just to be, to to acknowledge it. Because for, for so many of my patients, particularly women, I would say a lot of times their complaints are dismissed or they're minimized. And so I think to start from a place of saying, sometimes very directly, like, I believe you actually have pain and that you actually have suffering because sometimes people really sometimes come to like, doc, am I crazy? You know, I don't use that word, but they're like, I feel crazy. I'm having this. People don't believe me. They think I just don't want to work or I'm lazy, you know? And so I think to kind of start from that place of, I believe that you have pain and I believe that you're, that you have suffering. And so I think that's kind of how I start from that place. And then, you know, also really stressing self-compassion for people to really kind of have that for themselves and encouraging that because people are generally so hard on themselves and the things that people with chronic pain do to push through the pain, you know, and like a lot of the negative internalized beliefs they have from having it. And I think 
to build the trust, we kind of have to start there. So for me, acknowledging it and then for them having self-compassion and then, you know, we always jump into everything else. But that's the way I approach it, that initial part of it. Thank you for that. I do agree that validation and meeting them where they are is extremely important. Do you have any specific techniques for the self-compassion? You said they have like very identifiable things that they're also struggling with in addition to the loss of function. But sometimes it's even just starting with affirmations for the things that their body is able to do for them. So we'll talk about, you know, journaling. We'll talk about mirror, mirror work, you know, very, you know, Explicitly looking at yourself, learning to really see what your body is. You know, some people with pain, they have, you know, their body has changed in certain ways. It doesn't look exactly the same way it used to. And so I think either doing mirror work and I think the affirmations is to me like a place to start with Mm self-compassion. And as far as journaling, do you recommend, like, does it depend on each individual client or do do you recommend like daily or whenever they feel like it, what do you, what is your advice to them in that regard? Kind of like with meditation, I think, you know, I I like to have like a low hanging fruit when it comes to journaling. And it does depend. Very anxious people, I find we might not start there at first because it can get into, am I doing it right? Perfectly, ruminations, you know? And so I, I might say like, let's be sure that some of these symptoms are stabilized before we go to that practice. But yeah, I think of make it a low hanging fruit, you know, but really do have it focused on, to me, I'm appreciating this body that I'm in at this moment in time. Like if nothing ever changed and this is what I had to, this is what I'm dealing with for life. How can I start from a place of, you know, acceptance and using a journal with that? And sometimes I'll give prompts or like refer mm-hmm. them to maybe some other websites or things I, that are maybe more like about gratitude. It kind of depends, like you said, on where the patient's coming from. But okay. that those are useful practices that are typically accessible to people. Mm-hmm. And what what are some specific other techniques then that you use for to help your clients process trauma? Do you big specific period of their life or do you let them bring it to you? Like, how do you then proceed from there? In our system, it's pretty specialized. So I would say when I'm really at a point where the patient feels like they're ready to do like an intensive trauma-focused treatment, then in our system, typically I will be referring to someone who who may be doing prolonged exposure. That's a type of trauma-focused therapy or cognitive processing therapy or EMDR. I'm sure in your work, you've kind of come across those, but th- those are specific intensive trauma-focused interventions. And so I would say my role is going to be from the medication management side, kind of that early kind of stabilization. But when we get to that, I'm generally going to send them to a specialist who's, you know, who had, who's doing that pretty much okay. full time. That's that, well, these in our system. That's how things. Okay. Got it. I understand. I would like to ask you a follow-up question to what you mentioned that you do refer patients to trauma-specific focused interventions, and you mentioned EMDR and prolonged therapy. Would you mind just mentioning a bit more about that and what kind of structure does it have and what do you see with these folks who go through that process, how they respond and what happens? 
Right, so a prolonged exposure is a type of therapy that typically involves identifying an index trauma and reliving the trauma repeat, repeatedly. And, you know, part of the thought of doing that, that exposure is that you'll relive the trauma, but in a safe environment where you're in control. And as you relive that over and over, your brain, your body starts to understand that you are safe now and that we don't have to practice avoidance or whatever kind of maybe unhealthier coping mechanism that we're doing. And the the exposures can be different ways. Sometimes that involves writing it over and reading it. Sometimes that involves recording yourself and listening to it. Some programs I've been in actually have like virtual reality. So like for combat veterans, they may actually have them in a combat like virtual situation where they're reliving the IED wow. explosion or what it is. And so, um, but there's some type of exposure and then you're kind of reliving it. And so what we'll see is early in treatment, a lot of times those symptoms tend to worsen simply because mm. avoidance is primary mechanism of dealing with trauma. And so you'll see the symptoms kind of elevate. Maybe that's more hypervigilance, maybe that's poor sleep, you know, and we have to really support the person through that so they can get to the other side of their treatment. Because in my experience, I have not ever had a person who wasn't some degree better when they completed their treatment, when they've done prolonged exposure. Okay. There, there almost always is an improvement. That improvement may vary, but decreasing the activity to what that trauma is, is, is just so valuable. And helping them through that initial stage when the alarm is, alarm bells are going off in their brain. Okay. Wow. Right. Their brain is like, we have been trying to pack this down and now you have opened this basket (laughs) and I do not like this. Right. And uh, if I may ask, how do people get referred to that? Like you said, you refer sometimes out, uh, but how about if my listeners who have PTSD, if they wanted to, how How does it work or is it different for every state? And we just have to find out what are the resources in our... Definitely, you know, I would say like start by doing some search of evidence-based trauma-focused interventions. So you'll find a lot of people say, oh, I'm trauma-informed or trauma-focused, but there are specific protocols for these evidence-based treatments. So I would say start there and really interview your your therapist. In my system, we have a whole department of mental health. We call it Trauma Recovery Center. And they're all psychologists and other therapists who specialize in doing these interventions. Like they've been trained, they had consultation. So, you you know, I feel like I can trust any of my patients who go there that they're going to get something that's not going to be harmful because you can imagine a person doing this not in a safe, correct way could be harmful Harm, to somebody. Yes, and definitely. But I avoid that. Absolutely. Have you been, right. are you aware of physicians who are not psychiatrists who can get specific training in that? And I'm asking for myself, but I'm sure there are other providers who are interested. Are you aware of that pathway for? You know, I, I don't know the answer to that question. I think, you know, for most practicing physicians, as you know, there's a lot of things that you can do that, you know, you don't necessarily have to have trained in. So I think for like a general practicing physician, you could definitely probably do one of the trainings. Most of them, yeah, most of them I would say a a physician could do, but I think having like, you know, at least some familiarity kind of or background or a definite interest in mental health because you're it's it's a it's a challenging treatment. It's a challenging treatment for people to go through and to provide to people. Yeah. And chronic diseases, you said it there are layers of trauma in your patients that many who enter military might have been escaping something else, like something from their lives before military. 
And my, now that I think about it, my question is whether you try, whether you do peel those layers off, like, do you go back to what was it initially that led them to the step of joining military? Like, do you go to the origin of all the trauma with them? Yeah, I think it's definitely interesting for me, even just like an initial interview to ask people why they went into the military. I actually encourage all doctors to do that. If you have veteran patients, ask them why they went in, because sometimes the answer to that will give you a clue to what their, how, you know, what their situation was before, as they were growing up. Even if it's like, I had no other options but to go. Okay. You know, what happens to you after in the military is going to be a certain experience if you had no other choices, as opposed to if you went willingly and you you had another motivation. So again, I think with chronic pain and even like where it's manifesting, how it's manifesting, sometimes those clues really are in like the trauma. And so, for example, people who have a lot of maybe gynecological oriented pain, like really for me, being sure, like, is there something else linked here psychologically with that? Mm-hmm. Like not just ignoring, you know, what the possible psychological comes. Like you say, yes, there may be a physical reason, but also not to like, just to not ignore, I guess, the mm-hmm. potential like psychological implications of where the pain is. That's, if I was going to say the kind of psychotherapy kind of like, Freudian like interpretation of pain if I was where that comes in for me is sometimes it matters where it is even with fibromyalgia you know sometimes people with fibromyalgia will have pain in places that they'll say I hurt from the top of my head to the bottom of my feet you know that's something like I wouldn't hear with other pain syndromes and like when I hear something like that that really makes me curious because when I that to me a lot of times that whole body every place pain might be, might be indicative of so, of something else psychologically even as opposed to I heard on my trigger we know where my trigger points are or something when it's there that's going to make me have be curious at the minimum okay may I ask to share with us what are you working with in terms of systems or uh, techniques what do you use with them yeah one patient that comes to mind is Again, a lot of times anxiety and depression, as you know, they're comorbid. And so I think really just addressing that and being sure to the best of our, for me, my ability that that really is what I'm addressing. So for example, as you know, a lot of times people with fibromyalgia can have fatigue or fibro and even like fibro fog. fog yeah. So like I might have a presentation of someone who has like saying like concentration is my primary issue. Mm-hmm. You know, they may come and think that I have ADHD or something like that. And so again, kind of really like teasing out do they have that? Or really, is this a symptom, you know, of the fibromyalgia? So for me, it's like, is there like an independent thing I'm treating here? Or is it, you know, secondary to fibromyalgia? So for example, and one of my patients who really is related to fibromyalgia, she's really had a long documented history of having like, just blurred cognition. I would say kind of foggy cognition. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, sometimes we'll use stimulants there, but I find like in this person, we're using modafinil, no provigil, and like she's having a much better response to that. So, um, and I'm sure you probably use some of those things too. I don't Um, use stimulants, I have to admit. Oh, okay. Sometimes we will because uh, sometimes I will. Let's say that because I'm going to say this. No, they're not FDA approved to be used for this purpose. So it's an off-label use, but sometimes it is helpful because the 
the fatigue and sometimes the the cognition it really is impairing but for me it's important to let people know like if I think what it's related to it's just easy to say oh I think I have ADHD and to really kind of grab onto that and for me to say no you don't have a childhood history. No, really, I think this cognitive impairment is secondary to this medical condition. And mm-hmm. I think it's very useful for people to know that. And uh-huh. what does, if I may ask, uh, what does it specifically do? Does it, does Provigil do just more, like, is it more stimulant or does it help with sleep too? No, the Provigil definitely helps with wakefulness. Wakefulness, and infer- okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, at least in my experience, it does less as far as like um like activating and giving energy, okay. but just like wakefulness. I mean, that really was this person's primary, like I'm, I'm not alert enough to do things. And again, you know, have, as physicians, right, we're going to rule out everything else. Is there a sleep? Is, is there sleep apnea? You know, it could it be anything else. And really after we do that, it's like, no. And then how can we really approach it? Because it really isn't my ADHD. Like the underlying pathology is different. So sometimes stimulants, I don't see the same response that I would see in a person who had that. But I, I do use them sometimes if it's okay. really a significant issue. That is fascinating. Thank you so much. I was curious whether you would use it mostly in patients who, for whom the obstructive sleep apnea was ruled out or... Okay, that's the that's how you would yes. use it. Okay. Mm-hmm. What? Yeah, we definitely want to be sure it's nothing else, narcolepsy. You know, nothing right. else that, yeah, would be odd there. What has your success been using CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, with fibromyalgia patients? Yeah, I definitely think when it comes to chronic pain, CBT is one of the most useful interventions. And for people who don't know CBT, I think I think you said a cognitive behavioral therapy. So it really is examining the cognition. So like your beliefs about things and how that impacts your emotions and your behavior. Because and one of the kind of cornerstones of CBT is like cognitive distortion. So beliefs that you hold in your mind that really don't reflect what reality is, right? So I think what can happen often when people have chronic pain is that they really start to have a thought in their mind, like very catastrophic. So, Mm -hmm. you know, this pain is never going to stop. You know, some people really believe like I might die from this pain. um, Even if it's been maybe a stable chronic condition for a long time, when you really get underneath it, they're holding the belief like, I think something's going on with me that, uh, that I might die from this pain. So it really is kind of taking those beliefs, examining them. It's like, okay, you think you might die from this pain. Has it been chronic stable pain? Let's examine that belief. What evidence do we have that there is, you know, an acute problem going on that you're going to die from or even a chronic problem of the pain? Is this really a stable condition, you know, that is manageable? And so I think that's why kind of really examining those, those cognitions that are set up there or I'll never be able to live my life again. Mm-hmm. I'll never be able to do this again. That all or nothing thinking and really like learning how to process through those and come out of those on the other side with something that is more real. You know, I have a chronic, chronic stable condition that's manageable. It seems simple, easier said than done to really examine those thoughts. That's what, that was my next question. How, like, what is the success rate? Because I have been kind of reading more about a psycho cybernetics and mindset. And so I was just basically the point that I'm trying to make here awkwardly is that People can understand cognitively that this is not the belief, but they are not able to change the belief. What are your, what is your plan B or what are your weapons? What are your secret weapons there? 
So I think the secret in, in the modality of CBT, the secret ribbon really is what is the evidence for that thought that you're okay. having, you know, what really examining it. And I said it's easier said than done, but it really takes a lot of practice. You know, cornerstone of CBT, you know, is assignments and the out of session work like really applying it to your life and then kind of bringing that back to the session to process. So just like anything that kind of builds up over time, it takes time to unlearn that and to really kind of tr to try to do something new and okay. definitely engaging with chronic pain. It takes a lot to unlearn those thoughts. So it's not going to be like a quick fix. You're not going to do your eight to 12 sessions and, you know, be out you know, oh, great. I've, you know, eliminated these thoughts. It, it's, it's like a daily, it's going to be a daily practice, really. And what, that was my next question. How frequently you see your patients and for how long? Yeah, I would say a typical course of treatment of CBT is going to be about 12 weeks. So once a week for 12 weeks, that's pretty okay. typical. It can be longer. Some people may say they can do a, a course of that in eight weeks, but I, I would say definitely around between eight to 12 weeks is going to be pretty typical going one hour once a week to kind of learn these principles. Really, the treatment is to help you learn these principles, give you some experience applying them so you can kind of go out into your world, really, with mm -hmm. this information. Do you let them go then, the patients, or do they stay with you for biweekly or once a month, like maintenance sessions? How, what would you say happens then? No, typically they're going to do, again, in the system I'm in, they're going to do their course of treatment and then they're going to, what we call, you know, be able to go out and use their internal resources to practice. Oh, okay. So they are gone. Um, okay. They fly. You let them fly. Okay. <laughs> On their right. own. Now, outside of my, outside of the VA, it may work differently. I mean, some of that, I think in this system is just due to the nature of how busy it is, you know, mm. so we're having courses of treatment and we're you know, letting you use your internal resources, you know, outside of the VA and private practice, it could be more like, okay, we're going to do this and like check in monthly, you know, to have some kind of ongoing continuity. Okay. But typically in our system is not, you're having your course of treatment and then you're, you're done. Mm -hmm. What has been the most satisfying part of your job in terms of working with chronic pain patients? And I'm not sure it's a fair question if you don't have that many, but what would you say has been the most satisfying? No, they're definitely in this, again, in, in our system, I would say probably, especially for younger people, there's lots of musculoskeletal injuries, just the nature of the activities that people do in military and their training, mm -hmm. even if they don't have like a necessarily injury, injury, just the repetitive injuries. So there's actually a lot of chronic pain, particularly for musculoskeletal issues mm -hmm. um, that I see. I would say the most rewarding for me is really when people can, I feel like, take their power back from chronic pain. Okay. Not that the pain is gone. Not that they all have 90% good days, but that they really do get to a point that they're like, I'm driving the bus and chronic pain is riding with me as when they first come, it's like the pain is dominating and being in control. So that's, it's pretty satisfying to see someone who, who is, has been able to take their power. And you feel they achieve that mostly through CBT? The CBT program is the most beneficial? In that regard? I think that, I think that, I think mm -hmm. we, I mentioned also there's a treatment called ACT or acceptance and commitment therapy. I think that can be very helpful. You know, you talk about, about, I don't, I'm not sure I'm familiar with that. Do you mind talking about that a bit more? Yeah. The basic premise of ACT is that 
by accepting and learning to live with the pain, you really are kind of taking your power back from it as opposed to kind of like fighting against it. A lot of people, it's like they're in a battle against their chronic pain. Even that's how they visualize it. Some people even visualize like I'm fighting against this as opposed to I'm living with this. So ACT basically says, I'm going to accept that this is going to be a part of my life, which is really hard for some Mm -hmm. people to really do. And I'm going to learn to live with this. So Mm -hmm. kind of by changing that mindset, you know, people can really take their power back from chronic pain. And I think it for also works for people. A lot of times people in the early part of chronic pain, there is a lot of grief. You know, people truly are grieving the loss that they had. You know, I used to could walk without discomfort or sleep or sit, you know, whatever it is, they're grieving the loss of function. And sometimes those people aren't going to be ready to do CBT. Like, let me examine my thoughts. They're not ready to examine their thoughts, you know. They're still angry. There really is, I feel like, a grieving process. So I feel like ACT can kind of help, particularly in earlier stages, like by kind of coming to a point of acceptance. Because it is, I think that jump can be a very big leap from there's going to be a cure. There's going to be something that's going to take care of this. And I'm going to be my quote unquote old self to I'm living with chronic pain. That leap mm. between those two things is huge sometimes. What has been the most frustrating part for you as a psychiatrist caring for these people? I just think that part, the human part, you know, of us that it's hard to see people in pain. It's hard to see people suffering, you know, and to feel mm-hmm. helpless, you know, and I, I think I definitely come to that point. I mean, You know, I've had appointments where I have sat and the person has cried for 30 minutes, like just Mm -hmm. to hold that space for them. And again, sometimes they're not crying because the pain is so excruciating. They're crying at the acceptance that it's not going away. And I think that can be pretty hard. It's frustrating for the person, but it's, I think just as human, it's hard for us to kind of see people in pain. I wonder whether sometimes they're having improvement or whether they feel better because they're able to hold space for them when they are at their lowest. I think that's part of it. And like how we said at the beginning, just believe in people, you know, so many times because you can't see it and people who have chronic pain get very good at functioning with it, you know? And so you know, I think just that acknowledgement that, you know, even if they don't have, you know, a disability sticker in their car, you know, that doesn't mean they can't walk this, this whole distance. For me, that's like a big part of it too, is like holding that space. And sometimes people do want to break down, like they have something they didn't ask for and they want, they want it gone, you know, and it's not going to happen. So I was going to ask you about that MPH degree, the training you're in for how are you planning to, and just being nosy, I guess, how are you, what are you planning to do with it? How are you going to change your career? Are you planning to pivot in your career as a psychiatrist? I am. So my concentration is management and policy. And so there's a lot of things I really love about working in the VA. But one thing that is not so great is that it is a behemoth of a bureaucracy. And Mm -hmm. often at the direct provider level, you're implementing policies and things that you really have no say in. And the people who are making them often maybe have never taken care of a patient, don't know what it means to be an end user of the technology that we're using. So that was part of what motivated me to get the NPH. Initially, I thought, okay, I can kind of use this to move up in the hospital system and, you know, and be an administrator, like be part of the conversations because clearly we're not in conversations. But I think over time that has 
kind of transition. So I'm really looking at, at a non-clinical career of some type. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that will be hospital administration now. My kind of thoughts and interests have moved away from, from that. But that was kind of my motivation for getting the MPH at first was to be in the conversation. I like that you basically saw something you were not entirely happy with or that you didn't think it was functional and you went to get more training so that you can change it. I love that. And I know that you have another passion. You are an ambassador for ending mental health stigma in black and brown communities. Do you, can you talk to us more about that? Yes. So people who are watching and listening to this can see, but I am (laughs) African-American. And I mentioned earlier, I grew up in a rural community. So When I told people I was becoming a psychiatrist, I cannot tell you how many people said, why did you go to medical school? You're not going to be a real doctor, (laughs) you know, even like amongst my own family. So just like the acceptance of, you know, a mental health treatment and diagnoses, you know, where I grew up, we, people would use certain terms for just whatever people had, you know, they crazy or they mental or, you know, just, I think it's some of it's just lack of knowledge. So right. we don't know if they have a developmental disability, mental health, you know, you just kind of never know what's going on and the education isn't there. And then I think as I've gotten older and really kind of seen how, you know, healthcare systems, right? They, there's some inherent biases built into the systems. And, you know, it makes sense that people would be mistrustful. So I see myself as kind of ambassador to mental health to kind of destigmatize it, let people know I'm not shrinking heads. People aren't generally laying on the couch. You know, I'm not mind controlling people. I'm not trying to make people zombies. You know, a lot of people think of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. I'm not sure if you're familiar with that movie. I've seen it. It's Jack Nicholson. Yes. Yes. That's what a lot of people reference when they talk to me. Like, that's their frame of reference for mental health treatment is they say, I don't want to be like One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. And so for me, it's acknowledging the biases and stigma that have happened to certain populations in, in, in medicine, but also in mental health. And then really telling people what it is we do. You know, I'm a big about psychoeducation, how the medicines work, but I do intentionally make myself available for certain churches or certain organizations, particularly things focused in black and brown communities to kind of talk about these things and to really just say, it's just like other parts of medicine, you know, yeah, um, but it's, there's no it's magic incredible. Here. That is so incredible that you basically it's raising awareness and spreading education. It sounds like, yes. it sounds like everybody, every community needs that. But I understand what you're saying that where you grew up, that you saw a lot of that. So, yes. And I think even around like uh, suicide, that's going to be an upcoming like, educational series I'm going to do because there's a lot of myths about like black and brown communities that suicide doesn't happen. And there was a pretty famous actress recently whose son c- completed suicide. And so that's kind of brought a lot of conversations and a lot of black and, black and brown circles I'm in about, you know, suicide in the black community. So that's, you know, I think also like, mm. say, like there's myths, you know, and I think also like, like dispelling these myths too around things like suicide. Mm. Do you have anything else that I haven't asked you about and you feel that my listeners should be aware of when it comes to being a psychiatrist at a VA medical center, but working with a lot of patients and clients with PTSD and chronic pain? What, what else should we bring up from your perspective? I would say that I'm also definitely a big proponent of like really looking at the whole body, like holistic approach and 
talking openly, you know, about other kind of modalities, you know, that people have done or that may be open um, in our system. Unlike a lot of VA networks, we actually have like aquatic therapy programs, music therapy, art therapy. Like we actually have an art therapy group for PTSD and stress and anxiety. So for me, also opening up that conversation, like, yes, there's medication, but there's also, you know, what else have we done? I would say probably in the last couple of years, and I'm not sure how much is uh, big where you are, but like medical cannabis um, in Georgia, they put um, intractable pain as an indication for... Yeah, I, I live in Massachusetts. It's uh, legal okay. here, yeah. It's legal. Okay, so you have some experience. So I think that also has been a little bit of a learning curve because, of course, working in a federal system, we have to go by federal rules and guidelines as it relates to marijuana. But I do have a lot of patients, you know, because that's regularly at the state level, ask me questions or using cannabis like medicinally for chronic pain. And I didn't get a lot of training about that in medical school. So I think I've been trying to educate myself and including the medicines I'm prescribing and mm-hmm. how that might work with, you know, TAC oil. But, you know, I don't, I say when it comes to chronic pain that like nothing's off the table. So, yeah, that kind of holistic approach, I'm definitely more oriented that way. Do you use that term, healing prior trauma? Or, I mean, I use the term and I don't mean to sound ignorant when I do that. I would say, I don't know if I use it. And I would say probably my motivation for not using it, as it specifically relates to trauma, is just because I feel like some people interpret that as something like a goalpost they have to get to, like being healed or feeling that way. And just mm-hmm. in my experience, a lot of people depend, you know, the nature of their trauma and what's happening to them, they never feel that way. And so from what I what I use in the model is like a recovery model. And so I talk about being in recovery, not just as it relates to substance abuse, but as it relates to your whole mental health care. So I'll say, what is your recovery plan as it relates to your chronic pain? So mm-hmm. when people say, oh, well, my recovery plan is to take, you know, these opiate pain pills or whatever it is. I'm like, okay, that's not a plan. That's just one thing. Your recovery plan is the whole plan. Like I'm saying, the whole person. So, you know, what are you going to do if one day you take your medication and you still have pain? What's your plan? You know, Mm -hmm. and so as it relates to trauma and like that, too, I say that because also some people may say have remission of trauma and then maybe it's triggered again. And now we're, we might need another course of treatment or a, a change in their treatment. So um, I don't think there's anything wrong with using healing. I, I, I don't, I think, but that's just because that's, I, I feel like it doesn't resonate often with the people that I'm okay. seeing. And I, I talk about like recovery, understanding that recovery is ups and downs, good times and bad times. But, but at the end of the day, you still are on a plan, right? You're right. still working to live like, the best life that you can live. Mm-hmm. I love what you said about that the recovery is ups and downs. It's not like you get better and then you're forever better and learning how to deal with the bumps that come, right? Do you remember any kind of particular patient who had substantial improvement in pain? Actually, like they, they did feel better or less pain? I would say I've had a, a substantial, you know, so that's a strong word. So that's okay. From, this is no, noticeable. How about noticeable? How about noticeable? noticeable? Okay. Yes, I would definitely say noticeable. And I'm sure you use some of these in um, agents too, but there's medicines we use for anxiety and depression that can also be helpful for chronic pain. And, you know, there are some times that people are using those 
and, and, and some of those are specifically FDA approved, you know, for fibromyalgia yeah. pain. Yeah. And I've had some people who've had a noticeable improvement from using those. Again, I, I feel like it was probably a combination of things they were doing, like with their recovery plan and also that their anxiety, you know, got better. <laughs> their anxiety okay. and depression also got better. So sometimes it's hard to like single it out, but definitely that like the cluster of those things getting better and the patient as a whole getting better. Yeah, I would say that's pretty not uncommon to say like substantially better to me, that would be maybe, you know, I'm just thinking quantifying it, maybe like 85% of the time, no pain. That would be for me, unusual. Okay. Okay. That would well, be not so. Thanks for the straight talk. I appreciate that. I don't think I've ever talked to a psychiatrist who works at the VA, you know, medical center. So I really appreciate your insight. Are you available? Do you do any coaching or like a remote psychotherapy? Not right now. Right now, my primary clinical practice is just working with uh, veterans. Again, there's going to be a pivot at some point and maybe some things will change about other things I'm doing. But for right now, that's my only clinical work. Where can people find you if they want to connect with you? Where are you on social media? Yes, I am on Facebook and on Facebook, I'm Leanne Dooley, MD. I also have um, that same handle on um, YouTube and then on Instagram, which is probably my largest platform. I am under Real Deal Doc Dooley. Real um, Deal Doc Doc Dooley. Dooley. Mm -hmm. That's your IG handle or? Yes. Okay. All right. Well, thank you so much today, Dr. Dooley. I wish you the best of luck with completion of the MPH degree in May, correct? You'll be done in May. Yes. And there aren't uh, any complications. Well, I don't see that coming, but I understand the comment, but I don't think you will have any trouble with that. And I look forward to see where you take it from here in terms of your career and where we're going to see you next. Thank you. And thank you for having me. Thank you so much. If you like this episode, please share with someone who can benefit from it too. For questions and comments, you can find me on Facebook under Martina Lenartova, that is M-A-R-T-I-N-A-L-E-N-A-R-T-O-V-A, or on my website at www.martinazingenbeinmdcoaching.com, and that is www.martinazie. G-E-N-B-E-I-N-M-D-Coaching.com. And lastly, as always, I appreciate a lovely five-star review or feedback from you at any time. <laughs>